Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. My name is Misha, and I'm here as a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. And I'm David, also a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. This episode is titled, Which Socialism and Why Does It Matter? We're going to be talking about the different ways that people understand the word socialism in different reporting. We have seen a rise in people having positive attitudes towards it, and correspondingly, uh, more negative uh, attitudes towards capitalism. This is exciting in a lot of ways and signals perhaps a cultural shift towards uh, the left or maybe a a new openness that a lot of people have to left-wing ideas. But there is a big question there still about what is it that people actually mean uh, when they use the word socialism? What different understandings do they have of that? And also, how does one's conception of or idea about socialism impact the ways that they go about organizing to bring that kind of vision of the world about. Yeah, I certainly think it's really interesting that on mass opinion surveys, you get large numbers of people expressing a favorable attitude towards socialism and a negative attitude towards capitalism. I mean, I think that tells us something about people rejecting the status quo, they identify capitalism with the way that their lives are getting worse and with the threat of climate change and so on in in different ways. But we do have to remember that people have widely differing understandings of what those ideas of capitalism and socialism actually mean here. Um, But at the most basic level, when people are indicating more of a preference for socialism, I think they're indicating they want something different and better than what exists now. And that is fundamentally hopeful. But I think a lot of people tend to think that the, you know, socialism means the government does more things uh, for you, um, like Medicare or something like that. Um, Would that also be your take? Yeah, I think so. A lot of people do have maybe a fairly limited understanding of what socialism is. Socialism uh, is when the government does stuff and the idea of socialism being a bit more, being something that 
might involve kind of collective action uh, and not necessarily involve the state is something that uh, we don't hear about as much. And perhaps one of the reasons why there's some of this confusion around the meaning of socialism is that there is a, a long history of different uh, pro-capitalist writers uh, that specifically uh, kind of have made their ways into mainstream economics and academia, particularly kind of out of the Cold War uh, people. I'm thinking of like uh, Hayek and von Mises. Uh, they really argue against a caricature of socialism. They just view socialism as their kind of idea of the, of the Soviet Union usually, um, as kind of complete state domination of everyday life. And they will make arguments against this, but don't uh, include any more expansive understandings of how socialism might mean and has meant very different things to different political thinkers and activists throughout history. And that uh, this kind of state-dominated socialism is really only one understanding out of many that do exist. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And that is the dominant way people think about socialism still. Uh, but then for people who have a more, you know, friendly or positive outlook towards it, um, there's this idea that socialism means the welfare state um, with things like Medicare and public pensions and workers' rights and uh, those, those kinds of measures that they might call the, the broad welfare state, the idea that the state supports the population and, and regulates capitalism uh, because there's still private ownership of of companies and the economy. Um, so that's an idea of socialism that we get in the social democratic political tradition, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and then later the New Democratic Party in, in Canada. Then there's also, um, and again, this, this goes back a long way into history, um, other parts of the, the left that have ultimately a, a similar understanding that socialism is about state control, you know, replacing uh, private ownership of factories and offices and other means of producing wealth with with state control. Uh, so that's uh, an ongoing challenge. Definitely. And I think because of the way that these terms are set up and the way that we are kind of given very limited understandings of what socialism is, sometimes there's a, a tendency for those who you know, see different problems in uh, the welfare state approach or in the kind of NDP approach to socialism, um, if you could kind of call it that, there's sometimes a, a reversal of the classic Cold War one-dimensional view of socialism that just, instead of seeing it as a negative thing, it just turns it into uh, a positive view of, you know, of that kind of state control. And this is also really uh, you know, quite frustrating for for other socialists and for many people who uh, might you know embrace these words but have very different understandings might um, see uh, socialism as not some, some something that necessarily flows through the state as something that emerges out of the the collective self emancipation of of people working together. This kind of reversal of the uh, Cold War narrative that sees, you know, state socialism as positive also kind of plays a big role in uh, limiting our understandings and abilities to produce more kind of emancipatory visions of what that can be. I think that's exactly right. And as people, you know, living in a place like so-called Canada, uh, begin to understand 
what kind of a society we're living in and what part of a global order it is. And, you know, people who start reaching the conclusion that capitalism is, you know, the problem, that uh, it's not this system is broken, it was built this way, that kind of idea. Um, and recognizing that in, you know, Turtle Island, capitalism is completely intertwined with the settler, with settler colonialism. Uh, and that we live in a global order, which is imperialist, dominated by, um, you know, small number of countries at the top of the pyramid um, of the world system. And Canada is one of those, um, you know, and people encounter the idea of, you know, they learn a little bit about history, I guess. And um, they, it's the same people who uh, tell us that capitalism is the best of all possible worlds. Uh, we're also the same people that, uh, you know, have said that um, the former Soviet Union was a terrible place, um, that China under Mao was a terrible place and so on, that people who begin to rightly through, see through the, the lies uh, of our rulers, as you say, might then uh, flip into this kind of positive attitude towards those societies, um, which is a, you know, I think a, a real problem since certainly from, from my perspective, those societies were not socialist at all. I wouldn't even use the term state socialism. Um, but I think that uh, they were in fact fundamentally anti-socialist, even though the, officially, you know, their rulers called them socialist and they were widely seen as socialist by the, their, both of their opponents and their supporters uh, globally. So we can talk about that some more, but it's, it's one of the things that people need to grapple with as they try to orient themselves politically today to changing the world. I think that's a really good point and partly kind of gets to some of the difficulties of defining a word like socialism that have, you know, emerged through history when you have uh, a state referring to itself as socialist um, when it is acting in some very kind of fundamentally anti-socialist ways that creates a lot of uh, the, the, the way that uh, then the kind of terms get brought into uh, conversation. Uh, you get these big problems where, yeah, like something like the former Soviet Union is kind of all that people think about when they think about socialism. And even as a lot of socialists like you were just talking about, David, actually see it as fundamentally anti-socialist. Another kind of point I wanted to bring up, part of the difficulty with defining in terms like socialism, is that because there's such a low level of of class struggle, of political organizing in a lot of you know, especially at least in, in so-called Canada, people who get interested in left-wing ideas often usually during this time are finding out about them online, are looking things up, reading history, which is, which is great. But one problem that I have seen come out of this is that there will be a lot of, a lot of time and energy spent on reading different Wikipedia pages for uh, different uh, socialist ideologies or left-wing political um, traditions without a lot of uh, really conversation or engagement with, um, with groups doing that kind of work, uh, engagement with people who have been in these movements for longer amounts of time. So there's a, often a lack of kind of any intergenerational conversation. And it can, it can lead to sometimes people really focusing on making sure that they have the right political ideology, that they've kind of nailed down what specific ism they're, they're ascribing to without having that connected to the actual practice of doing political work. Uh, and I think that causes some problems. It kind of sometimes can mean that if you, you can develop a view of socialism or something that is uh, 
you know, sees something like the former Soviet Union as, as very good, actually, and then uh, don't have, aren't kind of bringing that up in conversation where you're being challenged on it. So people get really uh, entrenched in their views sometimes. And generally, uh, just when, when these political ideas are being so, uh, are being explored in a totally separated way from, uh, from kind of any uh, community or from a larger kind of project of uh, organizing, there's a disconnect between what one's view of socialism is and how they kind of, how that actually plays out in their, their political work and their organizing. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it's, it's a peculiar thing that, you know, you can have a Wikipedia page or a, something else online for a particular political tradition that, you know, was tiny and um, utterly irrelevant and an equal representation online of something that was much larger or much more significant, right? But there's a way in which you, it's, you get this strange uh, internet uh, buffet uh, of uh, every variety of um, sect and um, obscure political tendency and subtendency and so on. Um, and if you don't have anything to guide you and you just sort of jump into it and trying to figure out which kind of socialism you think is, um, you know, is the best one to affiliate with, yeah, as you say, without having any um, experience of organizing to help guide you or ground you, uh, it's it's a it's a pretty peculiar way to engage with ideas and uh, and with politics. So part of what uh, this can this kind of very online form of self political education can do is it um, can result in uh, conversations about socialism being kind of short circuited into conversations about geopolitics. People will put different flags in their Twitter bios or that kind of thing, or uh, say, you know, these are the specific nation states I support and are opposed to these other ones that I don't support. I mean, first of all, this is a very kind of state, uh, like pro-state view of, of politics generally. And it actually, um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest issues with it is that it completely ignores uh, the actual kind of class struggle element uh, that exists within within any uh, country and across different countries. That is sort of one of the more core things about what uh, socialism is about, of how uh, people are organizing together and struggling for their collective self-betterment rather than what any given state is doing. Uh, there's sometimes a complete lack of attention to what kind of dynamics exist within these states or what kind of you know, international sort of movements of people or work like solidarities are being built, this very kind of binaristic view between, uh, you know, states one supports and one doesn't uh, really overlooks um, the element of class and of class struggle. Yeah, I agree. And I think you see that around the war in Ukraine, if you have people who, you know, hesitate to oppose the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because they see the world through this lens of fundamentally of a cl clashes between states um, and they're opposed to Western imperialism and therefore they have a kind of the enemy of my enemy must be my friend um, attitude. Then, you know, despite the extremely reactionary politics, for example, of, of Putin and the Russian government, people might hesitate to, uh, to oppose that um, invasion. But just in general, you know, 
if we we're bombarded with a way of thinking about politics, which is about the clash between different states, uh, and instead of breaking free from that framework and recognizing that we live in a in a world which is dominated by capitalism and where there's a, a clash of um, of classes and fundamental antagonism between uh, the ruling capitalist classes and the working class and other exploited classes in every part of the world. And starting from that class, you know, class against class, um, you know, the workers and oppressed people of the world against our rulers globally, as, instead of starting with that starting point, if you start with divisions between states as a starting point, you can very easily get um, disoriented. Of course, there's a, there are hierarchies among states and those do matter in terms of understanding the world that we live in. But uh, I agree with what you said about how we should think about this. Yeah, and I think that's a really good, um, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the the way that, you know, there's been a lot of hesitancy among some self-professed socialists around denouncing uh, the invasion uh, is a really good example of this. And workers and oppressed people uh, struggling against their rulers is not, it's not a thing that we're taught in school usually, um, this view of clash between states about, you know, the personality of individual rulers. That's sort of the, a lot of the mainstream of how we are uh, taught about history and taught to think about the past um, and also to frame our contemporary world politically. And uh, it is a hard thing to break free from, but I think it is an important part of, of really the socialist tradition and about having this um, framework for thinking about the world that, that questions that and thinks about what, what kind of uh, other sort of dynamics are going on. Yeah, and it doesn't prevent us from, um, when we take an, uh, the kind of approach we've been talking about, it doesn't stop us from also recognizing that there are you know, conflicts between imperialist countries and, and the countries they dominate or imperialized countries, and that we you know, aren't going to be neutral in those kind of situations, whether we go back in history and look at the Vietnam War, for example, um, which you know, was clear, there was a, a struggle of national liberation there, uh, and the US you know, was you know, acting in an imperialist way and needed to be opposed, but one could take that um, understanding without uh, pretending that the political leadership of the of the struggle there was anything other than a Stalinist leadership, right? Um, and today we can say that it would oppose any kind of um, military intervention or uh, political pressure that Canada, the U.S., and similar countries might be applying against you know, Venezuela or Cuba um, or any other country you might mention. We can we can oppose that kind of imperialism um, without in any way politically supporting the rulers of the countries that are um, being targeted by Western imperialism at this time. Just like we can you know, support Ukraine's uh, self-defense against Russian imperialism without politically endorsing the government of Ukraine. In the conversation so far, we've we brought up the term Stalinism uh, a couple of times. And uh, David, I was wondering if you could maybe just say a few words to help define this term for us and also talk about, you know, how Stalinism has uh, really played a huge influence in the 20th century on how people understood socialism. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important topic. So first of all, it, it's not about just one man named Joseph Stalin, who was, you know, the leader of the USSR 
later in the 1920s through until his death in 1953. Um, really, it's when we use that term, uh, to me, I'm referring to a certain way of organizing society, a certain kind of social order that took shape for the first time in the Soviet Union at the end of the 1920s. And a certain way of organizing society then that was replicated in a number of other countries afterwards. And to understand this, we have to just go back and, you know, this is a very, very quick um, overview of the Russian Revolution, but there was revolution in Russia in 1917. The working class actually did take power, but there was a civil war. The revolution was isolated. It didn't spread. Um, the, the whole revolution had been staked on the possibility of it spreading beyond the borders of what was quite an underdeveloped uh, country. And that didn't end up happening, but the counter-revolution was defeated, but didn't take too long before the actual democratic rule of the working class gave way to something else. So through the 1920s, a whole number of different things that, that happened, but there was a, the rise to, uh, to power of, of an increasingly conservative bureaucratic ruling layer in, in the country. And then in the late 1920s, following a, a war scare, there was a fear that there was going to be a war between the new state and Britain and France. Uh, there was a shift towards incredibly uh, aggressive industrialization. And um, that went along with the dispossession of the, the peasantry, which was the majority of the, the population. Um, and out of this, at the you know, end of the 1920s was built a new way of organizing society that was marshalling the resources, you know, the labor power of, of, of the working class and, and peasants um, and harnessing it to industrialization and, and modernization. And it was doing all this in the name of socialism. But I would argue that in fact had nothing to do with socialism at all. Uh, it was an, an entirely a different kind of um, of society, but it was uh, this kind of aggressive counter-revolutionary modernization. So it was out of the ashes of the Russian Revolution, um, the new ruling class that consolidated at the end of the 1920s, using socialist language, you know, did manage to through super exploitation build uh, an, a more industrial economy. As Joseph Stalin said, at one point. We are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make good this distance in 10 years. Either we do it or we shall be crushed. So the process that took hundreds of years in Britain, for example, was compressed into a decade or so. But this was widely seen by people around the world as, as socialism. Um, this kind of bureaucratic dictatorship of in, industrial modernization. So many people on the left identified this society as socialism and supported it on that, on that basis. Um, and then later on, this way of organizing society was actually came into existence as a result of a number of other revolutions, such as in China or Cuba. And then in Eastern Europe, it was imposed from, from above by the, uh, the Red Army of the, of the USSR. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful overview of what Stalinism is and kind of how it how it emerged historically and one important thing uh for how this shaped uh the understanding of socialism uh for people on the left actually was after the 1917 russian revolution 
and after you know the the civil war which kind of ended with greatly isolating the sort of newly formed uh soviet union uh the left internationally kind of was placed in a situation of needing to kind of respond to what was what was going on there was a lot of a lot of people had different critiques or or saw um this new government that had emerged as as not what they were uh as not socialist or gave it or had critiques of it a lot of other people also uh embraced it and um kind of saw it rather than a kind of internationally um you know coordinating revolutionary movement it became very much um you know, a, a state uh, that called itself socialist, positioning itself as leading the the international socialist movement and using language and framing itself that way, which partly created a lot of a lot of confusion. A lot of socialists, um, you know, saw this as legitimate and tried to kind of take directives from this. And part of what you you get out of this is the formation of communist parties in different different countries that very much really took a lot of directive from the USSR following kind of the the policy that was put forward by the Stalinist government there and well it was kind of I guess problematic for a couple of different reasons and in one sense it created a lot of sort of discontinuity between uh, the way that individual parties were sort of responding to their local contexts um, by kind of uh, taking, you know, policy advice or political directive from uh, a government that really was quite removed from what they were doing, uh, and also kind of following this very um, sort of centralized uh, model that was based on um, a a sort of championing of a, a kind of super exploitation in order to kind of uh, you know, bring the working class to uh, a, a higher level of development or whatnot, or whatever they were kind of stating their aims as. Uh, I think one one kind of example of this, uh, how this played out in the Communist Party of Canada uh, as the Second World War approached is the the uh, Soviet Union took a policy of a uh, what they called a united front to get um, to have the different communist parties of various countries align with the national governments in order to uh, oppose the Nazi regime, which one could argue that made a lot of sense in somewhere like France or whatnot. Um, I don't kind of know enough about that specific history, but part of what that led to in somewhere like so-called Canada is that the communist party here ended up really opposing a lot of workers' strikes or workers' um, demands for better conditions during the wartime and siding with the government against different left oppositions, um, which, you know, in the context where we were not directly being militarily threatened, um, was really a kind of strikingly anti-worker position for the the party to take. This is kind of part of the, I don't know, the the fallout of kind of taking taking directive uh, from uh, the Soviet Union, or kind of having that sort of model of a a party system, um, and uh, David, you probably know a little bit more about kind of how that's developed or kind of continued on. Or I'd, I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts about uh, about that kind of relationship. The, yeah, the thing about the uh, so after the Russian Revolution, there were socialists around the world who uh, organized political parties that were you know, revolutionary socialist um, and supporting the Russian Revolution, breaking with uh, the politics of, of uh, reformist socialism, but then their, their leaderships became 
uh, totally subordinated to the new rulers in the USSR, uh, and they expelled and drove out uh, many members who didn't want to go along with that, uh, who had all sorts of concerns about the politics that were being foisted on them by the leadership um, in Russia and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, there were still many, you know, really sincere um, working class militants and other radicals who were drawn to these organizations. Um, and the, the tragedy was that, you know, they had people who were um, in a place like Winnipeg in the North End, there were a lot of Communist Party, you know, members. Um, and, and some of them were, you know, very effective and sincere fighters, organizers, um, but they were defending the indefensible. Um, and uh, in terms of the, the Soviet Union, and then there were also many problems with the, the politics of um, these parties. And you mentioned one about the whole position that uh, during World War II, uh, opposing strikes and, and so on in the name of the war effort. The tragic thing there, the terrible thing there was that at the beginning of the war, when you know, USSR was actually in alliance with Nazi Germany, carving up Poland and, and so on, um, and sending, as some people don't know this, but it's actually sending some communists, deporting them to Nazi Germany, uh, where they were killed, of course. Um, but uh, from swing, swinging from, you know, supporting that uh, alliance to becoming super patriotic uh, supporters of the war effort who would oppose any, um, yeah, opposing strikes and, and so on. So that that is just an example of how the politics of, you know, people in communist parties uh, in other parts of the world were really shaped by the foreign policy of the USSR. Um, so subordinating um, the struggles in their countries to what the rulers of the USSR thought were in their, in their interests. That just over the course of the, the 20th century, um, as more people came to understand you know, what was going on to some extent in the USSR, uh, there was a great deal of disillusionment. And this is the more that, you know, the more that socialism was identified with countries like Russia and China, um, the, the greater the damage that was done to the left because people you know, um, ended up, many, many people just ended up dropping out of politics or becoming social Democrats um, and giving up any kind of anti-capitalist politics because they felt that the only alternative, the only alternative they could imagine was that kind of society. And when they you know, abandoned support for those societies, they, they gave up on anti-capitalism instead of rethinking and you know, going back and actually analyzing those societies and questioning their claims to actually being socialist or in transition to socialism. Um, but of course, because those societies were being denounced you know, through the Cold War, NATO governments and so on, um, the kind of enemy of my enemy is my friend mentality was you know, an, an issue. There were many people who saw the support of say the US government for the death squad regimes in Central America um, might be inclined to support the states you know, that were in conflict with, with the US. Um, rather than questioning their uh, claims to being to being socialist. I think that, you know, there's a long tradition within socialism of thinking about socialism as something that would be brought about by a government that would come to office in the existing institutions of the state. So whether it's by getting elected or by taking power in some other way, 
then you know socialists get a hold of the of the state and then use the state to reconstruct society uh, from the top down and that's uh, there are different versions of this kind of approach but um, they all have that kind of underlying uh, idea in in common if you think that the way to form a government is through elections then that leads pretty clearly to a strategy which is all about trying to maximize the number of people who vote for the socialist organization in, in question. And there can be a logic then which leads people to avoid doing things that might cost them votes, right? So downplaying potentially controversial or unpopular ideas or actions um, because that would might lead to getting fewer votes. And you know, the more that elections are seen as central, the more that grassroots workplace and community organizing would be seen as, as less important. So that's uh, been a really strong uh, aspect of, uh, of socialist politics in the past, and it's still also um, very, very strong today. Then um, I think there's also connected to that, if you have an idea of socialism, which is about a particular party taking power and then doing things for the people that put them into to power, um, there's a way in which that can lead socialists to treat building their own organizations, building their own parties or groups that claim to be parties, um, make that the, the priority of what they do. Um, and that can be dangerous because it can lead them to then relate to movements and struggles that are happening in ways that are not ultimately about helping those movements and struggles strengthen and advance, but uh, to act in ways that prioritize building their own uh, socialist organizations, right? So acting in a way which is really determined by what the priorities of their organizations are rather than by what's in the best interest of advancing the, the movement as a whole. And at its worst, that can end up being manipulative um, and destructive of movements of, of working class people and, and oppressed people. Um, and that's from I think our perspective, really a serious problem because if if we actually think that it's socialism could only be uh, brought about as a result of an enormous movement of popular self-emancipation, then in fact you want to be doing everything possible to strengthen the abilities of ordinary people to organize themselves and fight for their own liberation. Um, and so that uh, you know that's a, a different priority than one which says the most important thing is to, to build the organization that sees itself as the leader of the struggle. I don't know if this is jumping too much ahead in our notes, but one kind of interesting sort of um, maybe companion piece to this is that there's also a sort of tradition that does reject uh, the view of building, uh, building a party to, you know, take power and uh, impose things from the top down. Uh, and that actually kind of spreads its kind of uh, critique of um, top-down power to kind of any organizational practice. So this is kind of more uh, associated with some kind of varieties of anarchism or, or left communism that will critique unions or different workers' co-ops uh, to, to say that they're kind of, they're not necessarily undermining capitalism. They're just kind of reproducing a, a workers-led capitalism. And while there can be some 
some kind of critiques of union bureaucratization that are valuable that come out of this. This is not the sort of version of socialism that we are necessarily organizing towards uh, as Solidarity Winnipeg, at least. And this is because uh, the, the kind of ability to have mass kind of popular mobilization of, of people to transform society, it's going to kind of take a lot of working together and between many different kinds of uh, organizations doing different things. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a kind of more spontaneous protest movement, uh, you know, like something we might have seen in Occupy Wall Street, for example. Uh, these movements do happen, but they they tend to have a, a lot of difficulty maintaining their ability to uh, organize or, I mean, they are kind of anti-organizational, so that is sort of what their, their purpose is, um, but they can be very easily undermined by, by states in various ways and often don't have that sort of lasting ability to uh, turn that energy into actual um, connections and solidarities that are, can develop uh, over a longer period of time. Uh, it's not going to be just kind of one spontaneous break with capitalism. It's probably going to be a longer process of many, many different breaks that, slow, that bring us away from it. This kind of spontaneous view that uh, one kind of big uprising will break from capitalism without kind of any organizational structures can be feel appealing uh, for those maybe who are critical of, you know, the, the party models and whatnot. Uh, it also has some some quite fundamental problems. I think that's that's clear. Yeah, I think that, of course, big, spontaneous, popular upsurges happen, and they're really important. But as you say, they have their limitations. Um, and, you know, we, so the question is, what can we do with them when they happen, right? How can we mm-hmm. um, help to advance them to develop all their best potentials, recognizing that as long as we're under capitalism, struggles are going to ebb and flow and um, until we actually, um, you know, can actually make a break uh, with, uh, with capitalism. So I think maybe to sum up some of what we've been saying that we're, we're criticizing um, the kind of tradition that we could call socialism from above, whether um, the one version of it, which looks to electing uh, people into office who will then can reconstruct society along socialist lines, uh, or people who think that the way to do it is by you know, taking power and smashing the existing state and having you know the party act on behalf of the people who put them into power to uh, to reconstruct society. Um, that's two strands of socialism from above, but also against the kind of spontaneist um, model that you've just been describing so well. So maybe we should talk a little bit about um, how we understand socialism. I think that's a great idea. And uh, to do this, um, we as uh, Solidarity Winnipeg have a a quite short document um, called Our Eco-Socialism. Um, which outlines some of our particular understanding as a group of what we imagine socialism to be. And we're not going to read all of it. I encourage you to go take a look at it um, on your own time. I will include it in the show notes. But let's talk about a few kind of key points. So, yeah, I mean, we say in it that eco-socialism would be a society in which production would be democratically planned and all forms of oppression uprooted. The relationship between people and the rest of nature would be completely transformed. 
efforts would be underway to repair ecological damage, class division and state power would have withered away along with commodity production and wage labor. So that's the idea, very long-term objective, the kind of society that we think is necessary and, and possible. And there would obviously have to be a long period of transition between uh, you know, beginnings of a revolutionary process of transformation and that ultimate goal being achieved. Um, but I guess some of the things to just to kind of underline here is we're talking about a society um, which actually does away with all the, the features of, of capitalism um, and of class society as, as well, and including uh, a state power separated from the self-organization of society. Um, and so this is a way, it's a kind of an, an ecological communism with a small c in the original idea of communism, not um, the way that term came to be associated with the bureaucratic dictatorships of Soviet Union and China and so on. Um, but it's that kind of society of, of liberation that we're talking about when we talk about eco-socialism. And we call, I think we call it eco-socialism precisely to just underline how important it is in our time for you know, the transition towards that kind of a society to be one that is really taking up the ecological crisis and the need to transform the relationship between humanity and the rest of nature. And uh, another, another just section from this document that I'll I'll read here is uh, from right at the end. Um, because the transition towards eco-socialism is only possible when the working class itself democratically runs society. In the here and now, eco-socialists should always try to promote the most bottom-up, participatory, and democratic ways of organizing. These increase people's capacity to organize in ways that point towards one day taking control of our society and democratically running it ourselves. So. As an organization, we are not, um, you know, looking at, you know, promoting um, a specific MP or uh, running a political candidate. Um, we are looking at uh, different ways of organizing really at, um, uh, you know, I mean, grassroots is maybe a kind of overused uh, term at this point, but uh, looking at working with other community organizations. Um, different people uh, doing various kinds of work in society and being a part of that, working together um, to build a, a more democratically run society. Yeah, and I think something we probably should have said earlier and, and didn't is that, of course, we talked when we were talking about different ideas of socialism, um, ultimately, the most important way to clarify people's areas of agreement and disagreement is, is in practice, right? Um, but it's, it's harder to clarify when, what people actually mean and whether we actually um, might be using different language but meaning the same things or whether we're using the same language but actually have different ideas of what it means. It's difficult to clarify that except in practice. Um, but at a time like this, um, in the society, it's difficult to clarify some of those things when the, the level of social struggle is really low. So just to explain what I mean by that, you know, if you have people who, um, might use different terms or different ideas about socialism or radical politics, um, but you're faced with a strike or a protest against um, a government policy or something like that, then the question of how you actually organize to respond to those things uh, is, is posed. And, you know, you can prove in practice sometimes um, more, you know, more clearly to more people 
um, you know, what particular kind of politics actually means uh, when you're relating to that, right? So if you have, a, say, a, a strike and uh, one group of people on the left um, are trying to support that strike, but they do that in a way that's not at all critical um, of the leadership of the, the union in question. Uh, and then you have another group of people who are trying to support that strike and they are building relationships with people who are participating in the strike, who are critical of their own leaders and are trying to push the strike in a more effective direction, right? So that's a different orientation. Um, one group of people orienting on the people who are the official leaders of the union um, and another are orienting to support people within that struggle who are trying to push the, uh, the struggle in a more militant way, right? So that's just one example of how when you're confronted with an actual struggle, uh, it puts the politics of everybody concerned to the test um, and that it's that ultimately which, which really matters, right? In, in terms of how we try to move the struggles forward. So the, the lines from the end of that policy that you were quoting, Misha, um, just give us some guidelines towards how to relate to movements and struggles when they're uh, when they're happening. I mean, this maybe already has been said in some different um, different ways, but one kind of note about how socialism gets defined or um, kind of thought of in some ways that um, I at least do not kind of find super helpful um, are sometimes uh, socialism gets talked about uh, both as you know a, a, a top down. Um, kind of state thing, but also as kind of a a special like one special policy or you know one one thing that is going to kind of do away with uh, with the evils of capitalism uh, and and then kind of suddenly we'll be we'll be in socialism and it will all be okay uh, and you know this kind of thinking has some appeal to it obviously it's it's uh, an easier way or it seems like an easier uh, and more achievable thing than you know a long term transformation of society from the bottom up, which is obviously a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, but some of this, uh, you know, sometimes this is more, you know, a very authoritarian thing of if you just have a, you know, the right dictator who imposes uh, the socialism from above, that will be, that will be good. Um, and that's one way of thinking about it. But other, other kind of, you know, one trick socialisms, as I kind of like to think of them, will sometimes emerge in and sometimes the ways people talk about um, UBI or universal basic income, uh, this is like a kind of more complex thing that could unpack more. But one of the uh, issues that sort of gets brought up uh, with it is sort of this idea that if you just implement this policy, we will be in a totally egalitarian welfare state, and and that will be and that's the goal. It might be one step along a much longer road of. Uh, building some kind of more egalitarian society, or it might not be, but uh, the idea of, you know, setting our sights on a really kind of limited, you know, one policy, it's a more limited way of thinking about socialism. Um, a part of what I think about when I think about, you know, the, the kind of future of uh, what socialism might be is that we might actually not, you know, we don't have a, a worked out blueprint for the ideal perfect society that will exist um, in a hundred years or something like that. Uh, and I don't think that's really a worthwhile project to pursue, um, the project of, you know, drafting up your, your, you know, utopia. And why that is, uh, is that it's, um, the way that, 
uh, at least sort of in my thinking and understanding of um, socialism as something that emerges from uh, the kind of collective self-emancipation of uh, working and oppressed peoples is that uh, the, the, the demands and the kind of future vision uh, for what, uh, what that society will look like are going to kind of emerge through the process of struggling for uh, a better world. Uh, they're going to emerge collectively. They're not going to be one person's um, kind of designs for how the future ought to look. Because even if, you know, that seems like a very nice kind of utopia that you can imagine up in your head, you, we, we can't just kind of have a, a single design for a perfect society from one person's mind kind of imposed on everyone. That is, uh, there's something kind of very undemocratic, uh, a, a kind of dismissal really of the possibility or the potential of people uh, when they work together and are able to to do things that they aren't able to do on their own, uh, maybe you know, create or even imagine better kinds of societies that one couldn't really do on one's own. And it's that sort of collective process of self-emancipation uh, that I am interested in. I think you've just beautifully expressed a you know, really important idea that's there at the center of the tradition of uh, socialism from below, which certainly I, I support. Um, and I think that it's, it's really a, a sad comment about the times that we live in that our political imaginations uh, have often been, you know, so lowered um, that we have a hard time thinking about it in the way that you've just um, talked about it. And it's easier for people to gravitate towards um, thinking about the future possibility of an entirely different kind of society through the lens of something that already existed in the past, like the like Stalinism, right? Like the former mm -hmm. Soviet Union or some other similar society. Um, but I think that says a lot about how capitalism has, you know, um, made it very difficult for people to uh, imagine something different. But this will be another whole topic for a different episode. There have been so many different kinds of societies in, in human history, right? Um, and they're the, the, idea, the idea that uh, the way society exists now is fundamentally the way it would still be um, in, in the future, even if it was socialism, like people have a hard time, I think, sometimes imagining a society that would be really qualitatively different than um, the kind of society that we're, we're living in now. Um, but we're, the more we're cut off from understanding history, I think the, um, by the way that by the capitalist culture that we live in today, um, it's also harder to imagine a, a different and better future. The approach to eco-socialism that we're uh, advocating here sees ultimately in the long run, you know, if we're talking about breaking with capitalism and starting a transition towards eco-socialism, that has to come out of a process, as we've been saying, of self-emancipation and self-liberation by the working class and, and oppressed people. And of course, by working class, we don't mean this just like blue collar workers with full-time jobs or something like that. We're talking about everybody who sells their ability to work to employers um, and exchange in exchange for wage and who doesn't have management authority of any significance uh, and all the unwaged people that are dependent on the wages of other people, right? So, um, you know, if, if we're talking about breaking with capitalism and starting a transition towards the society in the way that we've been uh, discussing it, then really that means that working class, the majority has to actually replace the small 
capitalist class, which is dominant today as the dominant class in society. And that means the creation of new democratic institutions that ordinary people can use to run their workplaces, um, run public affairs, um, guide the way the societies and plan the way the society's resources are going to be used and, and so on. And that's different from having other people, even the most dedicated and committed anti-capitalists, you know, acting on behalf of others, right? There's no substitute for the self-government of the majority in the process of the majority of people actually liberating themselves. Um, so that's why we reject what we could call substitutionist politics, which say that it's possible for uh, a party or union leaders or guerrillas or some other minority group to act on behalf of the majority and liberate them. Um, so self-emancipation is, is absolutely central. And it, another reason it's really important um, is that the whole process of people uh, changing themselves, people as we exist today, we, we're not the people that we need to get to govern ourselves, right? To transform society. Uh, so the question is, how are you going to change people on a large scale? And this was something which um, Marx was one of one of his great breakthroughs in in helping develop social thinking was this whole idea of self transformation that it's only through the large scale collective struggle to free themselves that people could actually change themselves and get rid of what he called the the muck of ages which we today could talk about in terms of um, all the different forms of uh, uh, you know, oppression various forms of a consciousness connected to different forms of oppression and hierarchical thinking and um, and so on, but just generally to develop people's capacities and to unlearn all the things that we need to unlearn from growing up in the kind of society that we, we live in today. Um, that's that whole process of change on a large scale is one that people can only go through when they are actually changing themselves through the process of changing society, you know, running up against new challenges, grappling with them, coming together collectively to solve those problems um, that, that changes people. We can see that on a you know, much smaller scale when you have people who change as a result of their participation in a, a strike or a social movement or some other kind of, of collective action. But that on a much higher level would be required for the kind of transformation that we're talking about. I think that's a really excellent way of kind of, yeah, talking about what that sort of transformation would look like. Uh, and I'd be curious to maybe hear a bit more about it, if you have kind of thoughts about this, but um, maybe one of the the responses that you sometimes hear from people, uh, you know, who uh, aspirations for for building socialism or something like that, if they hear it as, you know, the working people uh, kind of taking uh, taking over society or kind of running society, um, the the thought that comes into their head is like, well, you know, maybe my job is I don't really like working it or I'm not in a, a workplace that feels very good. And if that was just generalized to be everything, that that doesn't feel like a very good version of society. And I think what that misses is that um, that aspect of uh, self-transformation that you were just talking about. Of It's not just that uh, we would kind of generalize uh, working conditions to to everyone so that there would be you know, no uh, hierarchy of boss, like bosses and workers. It's that there would be a a, a transformation um, at a more fundamental level, so that those conditions would look very different uh, than what they presently look like. Um, so it's not just that you know everyone has to participate in 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 working, but that 
uh, that kind of society and the dynamics of people working together might look quite different than they do at the moment. Absolutely, because and of course, it would be. It's not just about uh, you know changing who the managers are or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's about self-management, um, and it's also about trying to reduce the amount of work and increase the amount of free time that people have for, for their own development, but changing the, the nature of what society uses its uh, resources and labor to do. Uh, and of course, that involves both ecological repair uh, and doing all sorts of activities that promote meeting people's needs and, and, and helping them flourish. Um, and that would, you know, have to yeah, involve a, a very far reaching transformation of what we what we mean by work. And so this kind of brings us a bit to, um, you know, what, uh, what follows from this or what we, uh, what we sort of need to do now to be part of or bring about this process of transformation that we've been talking about. Um, there's a lot of different kind of aspects of this, but um, uh, one thing that we, um, you know, think that is important, uh, you know, if we're going to start learning to work together as, as different people and um, learning how to kind of unlearn um, so many of the ways of thinking about the world and ways of thinking about each other um, uh, that we're kind of taught in this society uh, is that we need to uh, work to build movements, uh, whether that's kind of different social movements, um, trying to change society in different ways, um, participating in them, supporting them, developing our uh, capacities uh, to to kind of enact some of that change, whether that's in the workplace, being involved in in a union, or talking with the people you work with about what um, what a better kind of world could look like, um, and also being involved in uh, in community organizing, um, building specifically socialist organizations, organizations that are going to um, you know, while it's important to have uh, you know movements that are are arguing that are trying to um, you know, win specific gains that try and uh, improve really specific aspects of social life. There also need to be uh, groups that are making some of these larger ideas about uh, about socialism um, legible to people, really, uh, because these aren't things that we always think are are reasonable to uh, imagine or that are possible even. So having people uh, and groups um, articulating this and saying that this is the a vision of the future that we we think is worth um, struggling for uh, is something that builds um, builds up people's ability to think about um, what the world could be um, and uh, kind of start uh, beginning this process of self transformation. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it, I can't underline enough that it's got to be a both and approach in the sense that we we need both broad organizations like unions and or groups within unions that are working to you know to change them um, and then we also need community organizing in different ways whether it's of uh, renters you know tenant groups or groups organizing against specific forms of oppression or whatever the, the campaign might be or climate organizing climate justice organizing we need those absolutely but then we also need groups which are deliberately narrower as you know the ones that are actually committed to the long-term goal of eco-socialism and to being active in those broader groups in the in the here and now so it's not about 
only one kind of organization or the other. We, we do need both because they, they are complementary and they do, different, they do different things that are both necessary. Um, and maybe this would take us to talking about how we as eco-socialists want to participate in doing some of that, doing some of that work. Um, because, and just to kind of maybe tie together some, some threads, we were talking earlier about you know, working to try to, um, in, in the words of that Solidarity Winnipeg statement, um, you know, tr trying to promote the most bottom-up participatory and democratic ways of organizing um, to, to take that approach to the work we do within unions or to the work we do um, in tenant organizing or, or climate justice organizing or whatever it might be. So trying to actually build the greatest level of membership um, participation, the participation and direct involvement of those who are directly affected rather than um, having organizations where you know, key decisions uh, are all just made by people on an executive or a small number of highly committed activists, right? We want broad assemblies where people come together and democratically determine the, you know, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it um, to try to actually build the capacities of, of, of people themselves and um, foster people's development as, as organizers. That's, you know, a way of doing things in the here and now that's consistent with our conception of, of socialism. And also, I think, um, when it comes to building political organizations, like eco-socialist political organizations, um, to have a real honesty and, and humility about that so that you know, Solidarity Winnipeg is committed to trying to build a, an eco-socialist political organization in, in the city, but we don't claim to be that organization yet. We're really more of an organizing committee working towards that goal. Um, and you know, just recognizing that uh, we have to be very honest about um, you know, who we are and where we are and how we go about doing that. And sadly, there's, too much, um, frankly, too much bullshit and uh, self-deception and deception of others that uh, goes on, on on the radical left that's really not helpful to us uh, moving forward. I think that actually brings us, uh, might flow really well into another point about um, uh, a sort of form of organizing that we uh, we don't support or that uh, is maybe kind of comes out of a different, um, more top-down understanding of what socialism is, which is uh, uh, what we might call the micro-party model. Um, and this is sort of, you know, maybe maybe kind of one, one aspect of a, you know, larger trend that you were just kind of referring to, David, of different political organizations and people on the radical left, you know, not having that sort of honesty with our, with ourselves and with each other and coming to think that our, our very small groups um, trying to make whatever change we can are, are actually the, the kind of total center of the political universe and are kind of the most important thing that is happening at any given moment, uh, which, is, which is frankly just not, not true. Um, one sort of uh, tactic that can arise from this though is um, when a kind of very small group of, uh, you know, radical political activists um, start kind of, or organizing themselves as if they were a much larger political party um, and doing this sort of for the purpose of uh, kind of pushing their um, conception of socialism or their kind of um, uh, model of organizing um, 
onto uh, a larger movement or kind of taking and uh, taking power over it. This is kind of a, a I'm not even totally sure if this is, this might be a, a different thing that I'm kind of getting confused with, but it's kind of like, uh, like vanguardism, I think is one word that maybe is sort of used uh, sort of similarly to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of, yeah, small group um, really, you know, having very highly disciplined members within itself who have a very kind of similar goal, um, but see that they're, see their goal as kind of taking power over a broader movement and kind of reshaping that movement to their their image. Um, this kind of is reflected sometimes through saying that one's vision of, of socialism or one's kind of idea of, of the world is the only one that uh, kind of is valid or that exists and and kind of uh, not uh, not kind of wanting anything to do with with others if they don't kind of also share that sort of very specific uh, model. And this can um, clearly lead to a lot of both a lot of negative like external dynamics for how that kind of group uh, works with other groups or you know frankly often doesn't work with other groups but you know, pisses them off um, but also how that group kind of internally relates to itself uh, you do kind of get a lot of um, you know hyper intense uh, you know internal dynamics in that kind of organization um, where people are expected to hold up a, a huge level of commitment that um, really is unreasonable for the kind of work that the group is actually doing and uh, to kind of not not invite or accept kind of any alternative viewpoints or uh, being very hostile to people who are still kind of exploring ideas for the first time and may have a lot of questions uh, and that kind of aren't, um, you know, questions that are not uh, are not welcomed. So you get a lot of these uh, uh, can kind of sometimes be frankly a little bit like culty uh, internal dynamics that go on, um, which which can burn through activists very quickly, and promoting self transformation through kind of shutting out uh, ideas that one finds kind of threatening or are like too complicated to deal with, and instead kind of settling into very narrow and uh, rigid ideas about how to go about organizing, how to go about relating to other people, or developing an idea of history. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone who, when I, mean, I was in my 20s, was in a group that was, um, you know, tainted by aspects of what you've just been talking about, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it had, the group had also better elements to it as well. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's very true. Um, there's no group in the society today that could really, you know, should claim to, um, you know, have an adequate strategy for the transformation of society to claim to have the program. Um, yet, unfortunately, there are groups that, that make that kind of kind of claim. Um, and then I guess I'll just also mention that sometimes people who are, you know, they're, they're looking, they're, they're becoming socialists, they're interested um, and, and curious, and they want to be quite understandably and quite rightly not socialists by themselves, right? So if you're going to be a socialist and work towards that goal, that's something you want to do with other people, uh, with like-minded people. And so sometimes people who don't know, you know, much about the, the history um, of these things, or um, who might be kind of influenced by some of the um, ways of thinking that the enemy is my enemy is my friend that we talked about earlier, might uh, join the Communist Party, which, you know, despite the name, in, it's not actually a party in the genuine Marxist sense of being 
uh, of organization with a sizable organization with um, the ability to actually lead a certain minority within the working class. Um, just because a group has party in its name doesn't actually mean it's a, a party in the, the real political sense of that word, um, which is different from the kind of Elections Canada definition of what a party is, right? Um, which that's just a an institutional thing. So another, uh, you know, while some, you know, groups we've talked about or uh, kind of ways of organizing will have very kind of specific and kind of um, uh, uncompromising, maybe you could say, um, definitions of socialism or of ways of doing political work. Um, you you on the kind of reverse of that. Um, uh, you sometimes get organizations that will be clearly kind of leaning towards socialist politics or, or interested in them, but not specifically having any um, shared basis of unity or, um, uh, or definition of what, um, uh, what kind of vision of society they are uh, working towards. And you don't always need that in an organization. Lots of uh, different movement organizations will address a specific um, a specific issue without trying to uh, you know say that they're fighting for socialism they might you know you can do a lot of really important um, you know ecological organizing anti-racist organizing um, uh, and that is maybe very sympathetic towards socialism or working with socialist organizations without necessarily um, uh, necessarily having your own uh, organizations, definition of it um but there sometimes is a a problem if that is sort of the the orientation of a group um without a a shared kind of sense of uh what that what that vision of the future is or how to go about organizing for it um a kind of example that i think of is i was involved with a uh an anti-austerity group um uh, a little while back um, that was doing some some good work in some ways, uh, but clearly was orientated towards uh, left wing politics and socialism, but didn't really have a a super clear shared understanding of what that meant. Didn't have a lot of uh, or really any internal conversations about um, you know what uh, what socialism meant or how to uh, kind of organize or orientate ourselves. Uh, in relationship to that understanding, uh, while the term was still being thrown around in meetings, or if people would kind of call for uh, a general strike or say that that was a, a thing we wanted to go towards, and suddenly felt like the um, uh, the the focus of what the group was actually trying to do became very unclear because of uh, because of some of this lack of uh, clear understanding or uh, conversation around um, what its goal was. In a situation like that, um, uh, you know, if you're involved with a group that seems to be having these problems, um, it can be important maybe for the group to kind of, you know, have, uh, you know, a more self-reflective conversation about what what its intended goal uh, is. Sometimes you maybe get kind of carried away in the uh, the meetings and the you're trying to do um, do the doing the work that you don't really reflect as a group on what your actual purpose is. Uh, and that can be a really important thing uh, for groups who, especially for groups who haven't yet kind of clarified um, their shared uh, understandings or uh, aspirations for, for building socialism or something like that. Um, so that's just a, a thought about um, 
uh, when the, the lack of a definition or lack of a kind of clear shared set of shared understandings can become a problem. Yeah, and I think uh, in terms of some of the things that working as eco-socialists, we can contribute to broader efforts around fighting austerity or um, climate justice or um, any other particular uh, struggle that might be, be happening that um, we can try to be constructive participants in those broader groups, uh, but ones which you know we have a particular understanding of in a broad sense of, of strategy and how those groups can be most effective in, in terms of uh, trying to achieve the, the goals that they've, they've set for themselves, because uh, we can uh, look at, at history and from our perspective, argue that you know the key is is mass social struggle to, to win reforms or to resist attacks coming um, from employers or from from the state. Um, Solidarity Winnipeg has a document where we try to sum this up briefly called from theory to practice and um, people can look at the show notes just to see that. Um, again the point is that um, there's a direct connection between our long-term understanding of what would be necessary to transform society and move towards eco-socialism and how we try to be constructive participants in broader organizations and in struggles in, in the here and now, uh, trying to establish you know, a connection between how we try to fight today and how on a higher level we would need to fight to change society in the long run. And I guess something else to, to add to that is that you know, we can um, try to, to do those, to do that kind of work in broader organizations and also try to build a, a distinctively eco-socialist group uh, at the same time, while bearing in mind that you know, an eco-socialist political organization is not an end in itself, it exists in order to try to advance the struggle for liberation. And so that uh, everything that, that we do as eco-socialists should be about uh, trying to, to strengthen, the, uh, strengthen the struggle and groups need to you know, bear, bear that in mind because um, there's always the the danger for organizations to become ends in themselves rather than uh, organizations that really actually help us advance towards the the long-term and short-term goals that we set for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity Winnipeg. See you.